Acts chapter 25. We're going to continue studying through the book today. We're just looking at 12 verses. So I want to read them and then we'll jump into the text. Acts 25. If you don't have a Bible or an app on your, on your phone or iPad, um, grab a Bible in the aisles. You're going to need one today. We're going to be flipping to several different passages. I want you to be able to look at those along with us. Acts 25 beginning in verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, and... As you yourself know very well, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. The text that we look at today is again historical narrative. And oftentimes as we read through a text like this, a text in which there's no doctrine that's mentioned, the name of Jesus isn't mentioned, resurrection isn't mentioned, there's no huge mission endeavor that the scripture uh, tells about. It's simply Paul's judicial defense. And not only is it Paul's judicial defense here in this chapter, but we've seen it. This is like the third time that Paul's defended himself, all the way from chapter 21 of Acts through chapter 28. For seven chapters, a fourth of the book of Acts is simply Paul's defense while he is in prison. What could we possibly learn from historical narrative that has no doctrine and no mission? Well, the the truth is that there is a ton that we can learn from this text. But one of the broad takeaways that I want to point out at this point in the book of Acts, especially for Americans in the 21st century, is that we can look and we can see that the Christian life is a life that is filled with opposition. Let me say that again. The Christian life, the normative of the Christian life is that it is a life that is filled with opposition. And Americans don't always get that. If you travel throughout the world and you're a Christian, you'll get it. For Americans, maybe we should say it's a life that's filled with trouble. We can identify with troubles more than we can identify with opposition. But it's trouble and opposition that comes from without and from within. Because the truth is we aren't instantly delivered from our hurts and hangups and our sins when we come to know Jesus. It'd be nice if that were the truth, wouldn't it? We still struggle with addictions. We struggle with idolatry. We struggle with seeing things that are created things and putting our hope and our happiness in those things far more than we would glory in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And in those moments, we are sinning because we're worshiping something that's created in the same way that Adam and Eve worshiped the creation instead of the creator. And in those moments, we realize that we are still in a battle, that we still face opposition, that we still have troubles because we have opposition from without and within. The opposition from within is the battle that we have against the flesh, what the Bible calls flesh and not just flesh and blood, not just our skin and bones, but the, what the Bible calls the old man that seeks to rear his ugly head. That yet yeah, we've been given the person of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And so we have the power to defeat sin. We have the power to overcome through the work of the Spirit in our lives. But we still struggle against that old man. Love the way that D.L. Moody observed the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's who we are. We're called to be living sacrifices that we've surrendered ourselves to God, right? That we've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God, but yet we still struggle. And not only do we struggle from within, but we struggle from without as well. Oppositions, troubles, especially if you move outside of America and you claim to be a Christian. But you know, the church in America doesn't help us with this very much either. Because the church in America would... would if you look at some of the sermons that are taught in many of the churches in America, the fact of the matter is they just don't work outside of America, which means that they aren't truth. If you teach a message and it's not gospel centered enough that it works in Africa as well as it works in America, if it doesn't work in India, but it works in America, then it's not the truth. You're teaching something else other than the truth. And most are, if not most, a lot of the messages that are taught in America that have to do with health and wealth, that have to do with ease and prosperity and all the good things that God has for you that are going to come to you right now today as you sow a seed, your blessing is on the way. That stuff is trash. It's not the gospel. Listen, if you go to a church and if I hear one more time that your blessing is on the way, folks, your blessing is with Jesus. And all the work that needs to be done for you to be blessed is found in Jesus. It's already been done. If you need a blessing, you don't need to sow a seed of faith and give an offering to a church in order to be blessed. If you need to be more blessed and you need to come to know the person of Jesus more, you need to study his word, you need to be around his community, you need to serve wholeheartedly on the mission he's given you. you there's no greater blessing than to be on mission with Jesus. All right. And so oftentimes we get so distracted and we don't really come to understand the message of the gospel. But the book of Acts shows us that this life is filled with struggle. It's filled with struggle. It's filled with troubles. A fourth of this book tells of those troubles. So let's, let's dig in today and let's look at what I want to call a totally committed life. The title's not in your listening guide. You can write it in. A totally committed life. We see uh, in Paul a man who has been in prison for two years and we see what it looks like to live a totally committed life in which they couldn't prove a single thing against him because he was totally committed to Jesus in every way. So as we look at the historical narrative, here's what I'd like to do. There's about six or eight or 10 or 12 truths that are in these little 12 verses, but we're not going to dig them all out today. But I would like to dig out three of them. I like the way that um, one 
commentator and author said, he said, when you look at historical narrative, there's underlying truths that are under the ground. They're kind of like carrots. The good part's hidden. The truth is underneath and the principle is on the surface. So what we're going to do is we look at the historical narrative. We're going to look at the principles that are under this, that are on the surface and we're going to dig out the truths that are underneath. And here's the three truths that I want to share with you today. We're going to look at, because I think these are particularly poignant for Mercy Hill Church and where we are. We're going to look at slavery of sin, the hatred of Christ, and then we're going to spend the most time looking at the providence of God. The slavery of sin, the hatred of Christ, and the providence of God. So here goes. The slavery of sin. In this passage of Scripture, we see the absolute binding power of sin in the life of those who do not know Jesus. The absolute binding power of sin. Listen to Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 5 again. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So a little background here. Festus, um, Festus has come after Felix. I'll try to get through the historical context really quick because I know you don't care, but it, it is important for the text. So Felix, Chris mentioned Felix a couple of weeks ago. Felix was, he, didn't, he struggled as a leader. Um, he was really, really a terrible leader. Even Nero called Felix in and said, you got to calm down. And if you know anything about Nero, he loved to take Christians and put them on stakes in his garden and dip them in tar and use them as human torches. He'd love to put animal skins on Christians and throw them out in the middle of their arena and let other animals come and rip them apart. Like Nero was out of his mind. He eventually burned Rome, many historians think. And it's Nero who tells Felix, hey, you got to calm down in the way that um, you're giving counsel and the way in which you're leading uh, these Jews. And so Felix actually gets in a lot of trouble. And uh, there is an insurrection that takes place in Caesarea between the Jews and uh, some Syrians over civil rights. There is a mob that takes place. And in the way that Felix puts them down, he gets called back to Rome. And eventually he gets kicked out of his job. And so he brings Festus in. Now, we know Felix because he dealt with Paul in the past. And Felix just left Paul to suffer in prison for two years. It's been two years since we last heard from Paul in chapter 24. And Felix has Paul just riding in prison, hoping that, that somehow Paul is connected. He knows that Paul's come back to Jerusalem in order to bring an offering. And so more than likely, Felix is waiting for a bribe. Maybe if I wait long enough, Paul will give me a bribe. So Felix gets kicked out of uh, his government position and Festus is put in place. Now, Festus seems to be a better leader because Festus, he's on the ball, right? He, he immediately, after three days of being appointed, um, and he arrives in the province, he went up, up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So Caesarea, um, Herod's palace was there on the seacoast in Caesarea. It was a beautiful place. And he would have ruled there from Caesarea, but he knows if I'm going to be a good ruler, I've got to figure out how to interact with this Jewish nation. I've got to figure out their religion. And the capital of everything they do is Jerusalem. So I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and see what needs to take place. And as he goes, only three days into his rule, pick up in verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Keep in mind, it's been two years. Two years since we last visited Paul in chapter 24. 
And what were these men seeking to do then? They were seeking to kill Paul. What are they seeking to do now? Seeking to kill him once again. Look in verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, as an honest man, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the men, let them bring charges against him. We see in this passage of Scripture the slavery of sin. If you look at the very first item on the agenda for Festus is he goes up um, to Jerusalem. It's been two years since the Jews sought to murder Paul unjustly in chapter 23. They planned this ambush that was averted, if you'll remember, by the tribunal. Um, They said, hey, send 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and get Paul out of here by night. And so Paul was saved. And I'm guessing at this point, the 40 men who had taken the vow and said, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. I'm guessing they're probably either dead or they broke their vow because it was two years ago. So those guys, they're really upset. If you remember that story back from 23, chapter 23. And so at this point, the men are in such a rage that they're willing to do whatever it takes to put an end to Paul. Literally, they are mastered by their anger by their rage, by their vindictive nature that controls them. And that's what sin does. Sin enslaves us. It controls us. Sin is absolutely binding on our hearts and in our lives. Sin enslaves us. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8. You can turn with me to John chapter 8, uh, verses 31 through 34. Jesus says it this way. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Egypt? Babylon? They're talking about spiritual slavery. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin enslaves us. What offers happiness and fulfillment and excitement ultimately ends in death and imprisonment and enslavement every time. Think about the the sins that are in your life, whether you would call them pet sins or major um, addictions, major um, categories in your life that you try to keep hid. That's what these men were experiencing who were chasing Paul. Two years And all they can think about is how they can get their hands on Paul, how they can murder him. Some of you are here today and you're struggling with secret sin that you hold inside of you. You're trying to hide it in the dark corners of your life. You're overwhelmed with shame and imprisonment that it holds over you. That's what sin does to us. And listen, the only way to deal with the slavery of sin is to exchange masters. It's what the Bible calls repentance. When we stop putting our faith in our idols and the lesser created things and when we turn back to God and worship Him as King and we make Him our new master. Listen, master in uh, this terminology that I'm using, if you didn't grow up attending a church service and if you haven't read the Bible a lot, it's probably kind of strange. And even if you're really familiar with the Bible, you still most likely don't understand what I'm talking about when I say that sin uh, enslaves us. It's really interesting if you look at that word in the Greek for slave, it's the word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. 
126 times it's mentioned in the New Testament. But because of many of the translations that took place in the 15th and 16th century and even continue today, even in the ESV, which I love the English Standard Version, those 126 times that the word doulos, which always means slave. I mean, if you do a word study of the word doulos, it's not anything but slave. It's just slave. It can't mean anything else. Slave in the way that you think of slave. Like you are owned by a master. It's been interpreted servant. If you look at those 126 times, there's only one time in the New Testament that has actually uh, been interpreted slave. And that's because uh, as interpreters sought to try to give the best translation from the Greek text, slave has such a negative meaning and connotation that goes with it, and rightfully so, that they said we can't use the word slave because it will instantly just turn people off. And so we're going to use the word servant. The only problem with that is there is a huge difference between a servant and a slave. See, a servant is a hired hand, but a slave is someone who is owned. And yes, it may be a negative term for us, but Jesus took that term and he recrafted the word in such a way to make it positive. Because what he is saying is that when you die to yourself and when you surrender your life, to Christ, that you become his slave, that he is your master, and that that is a good thing. And I think most of us don't understand that as Christians, that Jesus is our master. Does Jesus own you? Does Jesus own every part of your life and your heart? In your daily life, do you submit to Jesus in all things? Because a slave only does what he's given authority over. Are you about your father's business? Or are you about your own business? We're going to look further at that point um, in, in our last point today, and it'll make more sense. The second thing we see is the hatred of Christ. The hatred of Christ. Look at verses 6 through 11. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. This is the speaking of Festus. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him. They could not prove. They've had two years. They've had two years to pay eyewitnesses, to fabricate stories, to come up with false evidence. And they can't prove a thing against Paul because Paul stands as a man who, has, who represents a life that's totally committed to Christ. And I think we need more men and women and kids today who would seek to have lives that are totally committed to Christ. I think sometimes we've weakened the gospel in the sense that we have we've preached grace in such a way that it's a, a grace that, that is, isn't costly. And so we feel as Christians that we can go and sin and that it doesn't matter. Sin always matters. And when we preach a costly grace, it brings us back to the recognition that we come to understand that all that Jesus has done for us, the cost that was paid, and it radically transforms our life. And in that, when we get to that point, we look at God and we realize that he's a great master, that, that it's a good thing to be his slave, that he can totally be trusted in every way. They can't prove a single thing against Paul. 
Look in verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law or the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Now listen to Festus. Festus starts to cave here. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? What's Festus doing? He seems to be like such a great leader three days into his reign. He's already up in Jerusalem taking care of the Jews. Why is Festus caving all of a sudden? If you understand the history... And the tension that Festus is in here, it makes a little more sense. If you look back at Pilate, 40 years earlier, Pilate who stands and he washes his hands and he says, this man, I'm innocent of this man's blood as he virtually allows the Jews to go and crucify Jesus. What was, what was going on in Pilate's mind there? Well, you got to understand Pilate's story. When Pilate rode into Jerusalem, Pilate rode in on a steed with a huge army of men who were clad in leather and shining armor. They rode in with flags. They rode in with eagles on top of their flags, these huge icons that spoke of the power and the dominion and the authority of Rome. And he came in as a military leader at the time of Passover in order to show the power that he represented as he first came to reign. And it got him in all kinds of trouble. Because the Jews then looked at Pilate and said, all these icons that you bring and that you establish in Jerusalem, it's idolatry. It it's it's, uh, goes against the very heart of who we are. And they appealed to Rome and Pilate was called back to Rome. And he was pretty much told, according to Josephus um, in his uh, antiquities, he was pretty much told, Pilate, quit quit." Causing trouble. Take the icons down. Quit causing an unnecessary uproar amongst the Jews. So Pilate is there facing off with Jesus, seeing this Jewish nation that's in an uproar. And he's thinking, if I don't deliver Jesus over to these people, I could be called back to Rome. I could lose my job. And so he says, I'm going to give you what you want. And in the same way, 40 years later, there's still this tension that exists. That yeah, Festus, he carries the title but he doesn't have all the authority because it's the Jews who can turn his head. And they say, we want Paul. And so he kind of steps around and in a very sly way says, Paul, you want to head back to Jerusalem where they're going to ambush you? And my problems will be taken care of. And Paul, what does Paul say? Look where, where, where do we leave off in verse 10. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Um, as we look at this passage, we see the hatred of Christ. They don't hate Paul. They hate Christ. The, Jesus had forewarned in several different passages that they will hate me. They'll hate you because of me. Now, if we read this and I talk about the hatred of Christ in America today, many of us just kind of check out or get lost. We're like, I, I, I don't understand how this is relevant. I mean, we live in a society in which if you claim to be a Christian, it's not a big deal, right? We're tolerant people. But if you preach this message in many other places, if you preach this text where we were in East Africa a couple of weeks ago, there's tons of dialogue here. There's tons of relevant, applicable information because this message is extremely, extremely relevant there. 
we wouldn't read it and wonder how it applies. Most of us here, we aren't hated for our Christian faith. We, we live in a society in which at least calling ourselves Christian is normative in America, although I fear that's quickly changing. But it's important to study the Bible, and as we study the Scriptures, to study them and interpret them in light, not just, not just in light of America, not just in light of Memphis, not just in light of, of where you live on your street, but to also interpret Scriptures in light of the world. And not just in light of the 21st century, but in light of time as a whole. And as you do that, you begin to see that this is hugely relevant. Do you realize how humorous and and laughable some of our American sermons would seem to the underground church in China? Or to a group of people meeting in a small tent in a refugee camp? But for this message, as they see Paul on trial, as they see Paul hated, they can identify They can look and they can say, we too realize that as people hate us, they don't really hate us. They're hating the Jesus in us. Jesus told us of that. He told us that it would come. Uh, Look with me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Jesus warns of this. This tells us why they were pursuing Paul so vehemently. Uh, Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus is going to say that over and over again, on my account. Look, look at John 15, 21. Jesus says it again. Uh, in John 15, as he's with his disciples in that intimate moment, in, chapter, in verse 21 he says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Matthew chapter 10, he says it again. Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, he says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus warned his disciples, and he reminds us, that when we're hated by the world, that they don't hate us, they hate the Christ within us. And that gives us a boldness to stand. Because when we suffer in Jesus' name, we have, we're in great company. Amen? When we suffer and we stand with Jesus, we can be reminded, they don't hate me, they hate the Jesus within me. We will face opposition and we will face trouble. One of the interesting things that you see, and then we're going to move on to the last point, One of the interesting things that you see in this text and throughout history, who causes trouble? Who hates Christ? It's not the enemy that we oftentimes think. Many times uh, we think the enemy is those crazy people who are out on Bill Street at 3 a.m. in the morning who are just living all different kind of ways and our neighbors who are, man, they're just so... Their morals are just so crazy. And no, that's not, that's not the enemy of Christianity. The enemy of Jesus is always religion. The enemy of Jesus is always religion. You even go back to the Crusades, okay? And you say, who's the enemy there? It was religion. It was people in the name of Jesus but in the way of religion who were seeking to bring power and authority and take over lands, not in a humble, loving way that Jesus taught us to. You look today. Who hates Christians today? 
Islam, religion, other faiths. Jesus was highly intolerant in the way that he shared the truth of the gospel. And I'm going to say something that's highly intolerant, but I think it's true and it's loving. Any religion and faith outside the person and work of Jesus Christ is evil and it's led by Satan and it will always hate Jesus. Any faith that doesn't recognize Jesus as Lord and King is led by someone other than Jesus. And so there's no real thing as an ecumenical movement If we want to get Muslim clerics together and we want to get evangelicals together and we want to get Hindus and Buddhists, there's no such thing as an ecumenical movement. It's not possible because they're led by different dominions and different powers. Jesus said that he was king and that he was Lord. And what we see here, we see Jews who hate Jesus because they're led by Satan. They're vehemently opposed to Jesus. They're vehemently opposed to Paul. They want to kill him. We spent time two weeks ago with Christians who when they come to know Christ, they're sent back to the mainland so that their families can calm down. So that maybe within a couple of years, they won't want to kill them anymore and that they can come back because their Muslim relatives, when they hear they come to know Christ, their first reaction is, let's go kill them. That's satanic. It's not led by Jesus. It's led by some completely other dominion and power. And if you say, oh, Brad, those are such harsh words. How could we say that about our friends? How could you be so intolerant? Jesus was always intolerant because he was loving because he shared the truth. It's not intolerant if a child's in the middle of the street and a Mack truck is coming and the child says, no, I want to stand here and bounce my basketball. It's not intolerant to run and to grab that child and to throw them out of the street. We would never look and say, just let that kid do what they want to do. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to. He's pointing us to the fact that everyone who isn't for him is going to be opposed to him. And so we're going to face opposition and we're going to face trouble. And Paul faced it. But look at, finally, the the providence of God. Look in verse 12. This is so amazing. And this is what I want us to lay in. I hope you'll take this into next week with you. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Here's my question. Why did Festus say that? Why didn't Festus just say, man, they're going to ambush this guy. They've been after him for two years. They're crazy. I just started raining. I'm just going to let them have him. Why did Festus say I'm going to take a risk here and send you on to Caesar. Because that was God's plan. Bottom line. That was God's plan. There's nothing that happens in our lives outside the providence of God. God allows presidents to be elected. So let me just go ahead and tell you, for all of those of you who are just wasting all your time looking at social media feeds and you're reading all these articles and you're so up in arms and you're watching Fox or you're watching CNN or you're watching CBS or you're watching the BBC trying to find some real news, let me just go ahead and calm your fears. It's God who appoints leaders. You know what? It's God who appoints men and women to reign over the kingdoms of this world, and He will give them to whomever He pleases. And He does not owe us a Christian president. And it may even be that in the providence of God, that He may take someone that we would see as evil and use it for good. Let me give you three quick examples. Look at John 19, verse 10. John 19, verse 10. 
Jesus is standing before Pilate. I love this. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And listen to Jesus' words. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Boom. Jesus drops the mic. Look at, uh, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23, as Peter preaches at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who crucified Jesus, Jews or Gentiles? God delivered him up. But Peter doesn't let... Uh, the Jews and Gentiles off the hook either. He says, you crucified him, but God delivered him up. It was God's plan. I, I love, uh, look at Genesis 45. We'll go, we'll go Old Testament on you. Genesis 45, uh, verses 7 and 8. Listen to this. Genesis 45, verse 7 and 8. And God sent me before you, this is speaking of Joseph, after his brothers have come back to Egypt, you know Joseph's whole story being stuck in a well and sold off into slavery. Listen to what Joseph says. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine the transformation that's taking place in Joseph's life, that he would be able to look at his brothers and say, you stuck me in a well, you abandoned me, you left me for dead, you sold me into slavery, I rotted in prison for years. But it was God who did it. And God had a bigger plan. It wasn't you who did it, it was God. The providence of God is at work all around us. One of my favorite passages, the last one I'm going to take you to, is Daniel chapter 4. little... Um, Go searching through the Bible here today. Daniel chapter 4. Listen to verse 17. If you know anything about the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it's a crazy story. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is the ruler of the world. He thinks that he's king and Lord and God. And God humbles him. He humbles him in such a way that he says, I'm going I'm to make you to eat the grass. Your fingernails are going to grow out. You're going to think that you're a wild beast. And you're going to roam on all fours until you come to realize who is Lord and King. And this, this actually took place. And listen in uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, what is said. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know, and here's the statement, that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and He gives them to whomever He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. He says it again in verse 32. Look at Daniel 4, verse 32. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He will. And three more times, five times throughout the book of Daniel, God states... Until you come to a point that you realize that the most high rules over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to whomever he will. And guess what, folks? He's going to give America to whomever he will and it will be good. He can be trusted. We see God's providence at work. Do you believe in God's providence in your life? 
In order to see in the way, the way in which God is at work, you have to look with kingdom eyes in order to recognize God's providence. You have to, what I call, look under the surface. Do you know what I mean by that? As you're, as you're, like, you're looking at a pool or, or you're looking at water. Water can be so pretty on the top, but you have to look under the surface. We went snorkeling the last day that we were in East Africa and the water was so blue and, and, and green. And we went out to an island where there was a reef and I'd never been snorkeling before. So it took, it took me a little while to learn. And Matt helped me try to dolphin kick. I wasn't very good at it, but it showed me how to kind of get under the water. And then David helped me uh, understand that like you really have to trust your snorkel, breathe in and out really hard. And kind of want to breathe through your nose, but that doesn't work. And, and after I got a little more comfortable, when I could get my face in the water, and even when I would dive underneath, this whole new world opened up to me of fish that were beautiful. And it, as pretty as I thought that water was, blue and green, it didn't begin to compare to the reef and all the, the things that were underneath it. And in order to see God's providence in the same way, we have to look under the surface to be willing to trust by faith that God is up to much in the unseen, in the pedestrian areas of our life, in the seemingly ordinary days, that there are no ordinary days in the Christian life. That every day is an opportunity to be thrust into the swirling current of the Holy Spirit's movement in our world, to be a participant in bringing the rule and reign of Christ to seeing His kingdom come and His will to be done. But God's providence doesn't come to us like, like mail that's delivered in the mailbox. It's, it's not like that. We have to look under the surface. We have to dig a little more. But when we dig and when we look with eyes of faith expectantly, all of a sudden you see a whole new world that opens up to you, almost like stepping through a wardrobe, like C.S. Lewis's Narnia, in, in which you see a whole other world that exists. Let me explain what I mean. A couple quick, questions, uh, quick examples, and then we'll wrap up. Did we just go on any mission trip, the six of us who went to East Africa? Did we just pick a place and go on any trip? Was God involved in that at all? Did we face hardships while we were there? Yeah, we did. Did everything work out perfectly? No, it didn't. But was God's providence at work? Did God will it, and did He desire it? Absolutely. It took us five years to select which trip we were going to go on. As a church, we were so busy about mission here in Memphis. We said, we're, we're going to wait until we have the right partner and until God leads us. And we, we felt like God was putting it on our heart to go to this area. I talked just this last week with a friend. I grew up in a small town, small town, Alabama, youth group of about 10 or 15 people. While we were there, I came to discover that one of the gals that was in my youth group actually lives in the main town with her family where we were serving. I called her up and I said, she's stateside right now. And um, called her up and I just, we compared notes. And this is what she told me. I thought this was amazing. She had never, she's working with a whole different group of people than we were. And so she didn't know any of the churches or any of the pastors that we had related to. She's on a different part of the island. This is what she said. <clears throat> she said different people from different groups have all... God's given them all a similar vision, and it's this. They have seen boats filled with people going back along the islands to the Middle East, taking the gospel along the route uh, that Islam came to Africa. I said, that's really interesting because the pastor that we worked with, who's multiplied 10 churches, is building a missionary sending center. He's got uh, buildings that he's built, a training center for missionaries. And they told us the first thing when we got there is they said, we're raising up Christians to send them back to the Middle East. 
in order to be missionaries, to share the truth of Jesus Christ. I said, what do you think about that? And my friend said, of course they are. She said, that's just like God. She said, it's what God's doing all across the island. It's amazing. God is at work there giving people who don't even know each other the same vision to see the gospel taken to the hardest parts of the world because he loves people. God's providence is at work all around us. Do you trust that? Do you trust that there are no ordinary days? We, we come back in um, trying to get home to Memphis, and it, it took us about 50 hours to get back doorway to doorway. We were tired. We're in Chicago for 10 hours just hanging out as the airport's filling up. Did God have a plan in that? Yeah, as I sat down in my seat, I get to know the gal who's sitting right beside me. He's a flight attendant. Her name's Tiana, and she tells me, you know, that, we're, that she's going back to Memphis. Memphis is her hometown. Oh, cool. And we talk some. I say I live in Midtown. She says she lives in Midtown. Hey, where do you live? Oh, I live on Stonewall, up around Jackson, in between Jackson and Valentine. She lives just a couple blocks over from me and a couple blocks up. Did God have a plan for that? Absolutely. I said, you have a church home? No, I don't have a church home. Shared my business card with her. She said, I'm going to come and visit. God is at work all around us. We think that our lives are just ordinary. We think that the details are just kind of unrolling, that maybe God's wound up a clock and he's just allowing it to go. God is intricately involved in every area of our lives. We may not always understand in the moment. It may be months or years later when a, maybe if you're a teacher, when a student returns to you and says, thanks. In fact, we may never understand this side of heaven, but there will be a day when for each of us, our faith will become sight and we will see the many ways that God has been at work all around us, crafting circumstances for our good. Even the terrible circumstances that, that Satan seeks to bring against us, the moments of sheer evil in our lives in which we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then one day we come to see that he had not forsaken us that He was with us in the struggle and in the pain and that His ultimate desire is for our good and that our hope is in Jesus, the one who's done the work, all the work that's needed. I think that would be one of the beauties of heaven when we stand before God and we begin to see our lives unfold and we see so many of these puzzle pieces put together and we see the times in which we struggled the most and we see how God was at work and how He was walking with us and how He was with us. Because there will be that day when Jesus returns and he declares it's finished and there'll be no more strife and there'll be no more pain and there'll be no more sickness and there'll be no more first days of school and there'll be no more doctors and no more death and no more racism and no more suffering and no more persecution and no more divorce and no more heartache for the former things will pass away and all things will be made new. That's at least for the believer. Some of you are here and you're not believers. Do you know Jesus? Jesus is our only hope. He is our life. He is our peace. He's our mediator between God and man. Without Jesus, we have no hope. Now and for all eternity. Without Jesus, we have no mediator. We only have judgment. Without Jesus, we'll be found guilty. We'll be found an enemy of God. And so my appeal to you today is to come to Jesus, to find life in Him, to find peace with God, to find forgiveness, to find friendship, to find hope and peace that you've been longing for. Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. As we've watched the Olympics unfold before our eyes, we've seen some amazing stories. I love the refugee team. I'm pulling for them. I don't care if they win a gold, silver, or bronze. I, I like all of them. They're my favorite team. But, but as we see some of the stories that not only unfold in front of us now, but some of the stories from the past, one of my favorite stories is the story of Derek Redmond. 
you haven't seen the story of Derek Redmond, the, the, the runner who pulled his hamstring uh, back in 92 in Barcelona, write it down on YouTube when you get home. The story of Derek Redmond is an amazing picture of it. I think the way in which God comes around us. Derek lined up on the starting blocks. He hadn't had um, a good race earlier in 88. He'd been um, harassed by injuries. And so he was really anxious to have a good race in 92 in Barcelona. He's running the 400. So he's gonna make it around the track once. He comes off the starting blocks, great. He's in the lead in one of the preliminaries. He gets around to about the 250 meter mark and you just see it's like a chain coming off the gears on a bike. I mean, he's, he pulls his hamstring and he's just instantly out of the race and down. And he's on the track, crying in pain. And, and as everything begins to just wash over him, as he realizes all his hopes and dreams have been dashed, he stands up and he slowly begins to hobble down the track. An amazing thing happens. His father out of nowhere fights through security, pushes security off in Barcelona. And you see this African-American man in shorts and a t-shirt and a cap, holding keys in his pocket that are jingling, running out and wrapping his arms around his son. And as his son sobs, and as he looks toward the finish line and, and realizes, I wanna finish this race, but I've lost. There's no way that I'm gonna be able to do it on my own. His father just wraps him up. I'd be interested to know what he's saying. It looks like he's saying it's gonna be okay. And he grabs him and they just begin to walk. And they walk down that track to a standing ovation. And security come and his father just starts pushing security off. Like, you, you get back. And security's like, okay, we're not gonna mess with you. And they walk down the track and they cross that finish line. And I watch that and tears come in my eyes. And I just think that's a perfect picture of the way that God in His providence, when we think, man, I've pulled my hamstring, the race is over, I have botched it, I cannot finish the race, God comes around us and He wraps His arm around us and He says, this is going to be okay, we're going to finish this thing together. And what we think is failure, the world stands around and they clap and they say, they glorify Jesus for all that He said and all that He does. Listen, some of you are here today and you don't know Jesus and you need to know Him. I'm going to be standing um, right down here up front. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to share with you how you know Jesus. Some of you are here and you realize, I don't trust in God's providence. I just live my life. Every now and then I just cry out to God a little Hail Mary prayer when I need, you know, a touchdown at the last moment. But I don't trust in God. Maybe there's some area of your life you need to surrender to God. Maybe you'll do that right in your seat where you sit or where you stand while we sing this next song. Maybe you'd like to have one of the elders or your missional community leader pray with you. We'll be up front. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to just take some time to minister to you. I pray that we will trust in God's providence. God is at work all around us. God was at work in Paul's life. He's at work in the frustrating and the opposition and the trouble. He's working our lives and he's good. And when we see him at work and when we trust him, we get into this stream and this flow in which we find great joy in Jesus, no matter what's going on in our circumstances, because He's always good, and He's always loving, and He's always kind, and He's always with us. Let's pray together.